Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd. I'm the digital media editor at Heart. Today, we're talking about anticoagulant prescribing for atrial fibrillation and the risk of dementia. And I'm joined by Dr. Charlotte Warren Gash and Dr. Sharon Cadigan, both from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And they talk about a historical cohort study that has recently been published in Heart comparing vitamin K antagonists to DOAX and the rate of incident dementia and mild cognitive impairment. And we talk about the implications that their work might have for future prescribing. I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks both for joining me. Maybe we can start off by having you both introduce yourself for the Heart Podcast audience. Who are you? Where do you work? And uh, what do you do? Maybe you could go first, Charlotte. My name is Charlotte Warren-Gash, and I'm an Associate Professor of Epidemiology at LSHTM. Um, I work mostly on electronic health records research, looking at interactions between infections and chronic diseases using big data sets. My name is Sharon Cadigan, and I'm a research fellow with the Electronic Health Record Group at LSHGM. Like Charlotte, as I said, I mostly use electronic health records, and my key interests are in epidemiology of ageing, so things like dementia and frailty. And I really wanted to get you both on the podcast to talk about a paper that has just recently been published, which is called Anticoagulant Prescribing for Atrial Fibrillation and the Risk of Incident Dementia. Um, Perhaps I can start off by asking you, Charlotte, to tell us about atrial fibrillation and why it's so important and why you wanted to study in this particular area. Sure. Atrial fibrillation, so it's the most common heart rhythm disturbance, and it affects around 1.4 million older people in the UK. So very common. Um, It's more common in certain groups, men. It increases with age, and you get it in conjunction with other conditions like high blood pressure, um, atherosclerosis, asthma. Um, And the reason we're interested in it is that AF, as well as having sort of causing some immediate symptoms, such you know, of your irregular heartbeat, there are some risks of complications long term. The most well recognized is stroke. Um, So you get blood clots forming in your heart chambers. And if they enter the bloodstream, they can cause strokes. Um, But less well studied, um, but interesting, is this link between AF and dementia. Um, And we know that people with AF have got a roughly double the risk of having dementia than people without AF, for example. Um, And can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by dementia specifically for this paper and also mild cognitive impairment? Because that comes up in a little bit as well. Sure. Well, in this paper, we were looking at new diagnoses of all-cause dementia. So that's dementia really of any type. It includes things like vascular dementia, but also Alzheimer's disease. Um, One of our secondary outcomes was mild cognitive impairment. And really the difference with that is it tends to be at an earlier stage. So what you're looking at with mild cognitive impairment is people who have perhaps changes in their memory and their cognition, but they don't necessarily lead to problems with day-to-day function. So these people wouldn't necessarily be diagnosed with dementia. And we looked at both of these outcomes in our study. Perfect. And can you describe any trials that are already out there in terms of using vitamin vitamin K antagonists or uh, DOAC, should we call them, the, the novel oral anticoagulant drugs in AF and dementia? Is there any work out there already? There is. I mean, in terms of trials, I would say that um, dementia as a trial outcome is less well studied than stroke. So, for example, there have been a lot of trials and, and then there was a systematic review and meta-analysis published back in 2014, the Lancet, um, 
comparing DOAX with warfarin, and it showed a 19% reduction in stroke and systemic embolic events among people who, who received DOAX. So there have been a lot of trials in terms of stroke. There have been some studies of dementia as an outcome. These tend to be um, observational rather than trials. Um, and several of them look at, for example, people who are on any oral anticoagulant compared to people who are not on any oral anticoagulant. And in that situation, you tend to see a benefit in terms of dementia, um, sort of reduced dementia among people on the oral anticoagulants. But one of the issues is that few of the existing studies do head to head comparisons um, of the different types of oral anticoagulants. Um, and so that was one of the incentives, I suppose, for our study, one of the reasons we, we chose to look at that question. And let's talk a little bit more about your particular study then. Um, what kind of study was it and what were you hypothesizing in your study? We did a cohort study using um, real world data from primary and secondary care records. And what we were hypothesizing really was that people who were newly started on an oral anticoagulant for AF, um, would those started on a DOAC would be less likely to develop dementia than those started on warfarin. I mean, that was our existing hypothesis anyway. That was the hypothesis we wanted to test. And what kind of methods did you use, either Sharon or Charlotte, whoever wants to take this question, if you could talk us through the, uh, the methodology of the study? Um, so as Cheryl has already mentioned, we, we completed a historical cohort study using electronic health record data. So this data came from the UK Clinical Practice Research Data Link, better known as CPRD, and was linked to hospital episode statistics and index of multiple deprivation data, which are better known as HES or IMD data. Um, to just briefly elaborate, I suppose, on those data sources. So CPRD contains anonymized primary care records on diagnosis, tests, referrals, prescriptions, and also lifestyle factors, which are collected during routine clinical care. It covers approximately 7% of the UK population, and it's broadly representative in terms of age, sex, and ethnicity. While approximately 80% of practices in England are linked to HES data, which includes ICD-10 coded records of hospital admissions to NHS hospitals in England since 1997. And then finally, in terms of the IMD data, this includes area-based quintiles of deprivation based on patient and practiced postcodes. So what was the population that you studied then? You, you've outlined the different sources, but how many patients did you end up with in your study? How long, I know it was a historical study, but what was the follow-up length and maybe briefly the inclusion and exclusion criteria? Yep, so the study population that we included included individuals with an incident diagnosis of non-valvular atrial fibrillation or AF at age 40 or more, which were recorded in CPRD or HES between the 1st of January 2012 and the 31st of December 2018. So we followed patients from their first OAC or oral anticoagulant prescription until either dementia diagnosis, death, the end of their OAC prescription, or the end of the study period, which was the 31st of December 2018. So whichever of these came earliest. Participants were excluded if they had a history of dementia or an oral anticoagulant prescription prior to the AF diagnosis. So the latter of these was to prevent any historical recording of OACs for something other than AF, for example. And how was exposure to the, the drugs defined in, in your study? So our exposure of interest was OAC type, and it was defined as the first record of OAC prescription identified using product codes in primary care records and categorized into VKAs such as warfarin or DOACs such as apixaban. 
And we also time update the exposure. So what I mean by that is that individuals who switched OAC types, so for example, perhaps from VKA to DOAC, they contributed exposure time initially to VKA group and then to the DOAC group. And also among our VKA users, we also explore the role of time and therapeutic range as a secondary exposure. So for time and therapeutic range, this is defined as having an INR of between two and three. And then using this INR value, a percentage time and therapeutic range is calculated and patients are classified then as having either good INR control, um, intermediate INR control or poor INR control. And what kind of uh, statistical approach do you use to to work on your data and what covariates were included in the study? So in terms of our statistical approach, so first of all, we presented baseline characteristics by anticoagulant class, so by VKA or DOACs, for first oral anticoagulant prescription. And we compared the characteristics of patients who switched OAC type as well within the study compared to those who did not. Um, We calculated the crude incident rates of dementia overall and separately for DOACs and VKAs and we created some cumulative incidence curves. And then in terms of the main analysis, we used Cox proportional hazards regression to calculate the hazard ratios for dementia among DOAC versus VKA users. So we used age as an underlying timescale in all of our models, and this was to account for the strong association between age and dementia. And we also accounted for time on OAC treatment and calendar year. And uh, what were your main results? So our main results, well, in this population-based cohort study of 39,200 individuals, we found that DOAC treatment for instant AF was associated with a 16% reduction in new diagnosis of all-cause dementia compared to treatment with BKAs. And these results were further supported in a series of sensitivity analyses, which we completed. Can you talk a little bit more about those, Sharon, about the sensitivity analysis? What were you aiming to to do uh, by performing those analyses? Yes, so the sensitivity analysis were just some extra things that we wanted to really think about to make sure that the results we found were accurate. So, for example, we first of all expanded our definition of dementia um, to include both clinical and administrative codes for dementia. So that was our first sensitivity analysis. Then we also repeated our analysis um, restricted to patients with just linked primary and hospital data. So this reduced our sample size to just over 18,000. And then finally, we only included dementia outcomes, which occurred at least one year after the first OAC prescription. Okay, so so in summary, you've got around 39,000 people aged 40 and above uh, followed for, was it six years? 2012, 2018. And roughly split uh, 18,000 DOAC, 20,000 VKA. And then your what was your incident rate of dementia? So our incident rate of dementia for the overall sample was 16.5 per 1,000 person years. And in terms of the, I know you, you may have already said it, but the hazard ratio was 16% less for those on, um, on DOACs. But what about the, for dementia and MCI, the individual results uh, compared to VKA as the standard? I've got here 0.85 for dementia and 0.74 for MCI. Does that sound about right? Yes. So so for its secondary outcome of MCI, we found a 26% reduction in new diagnosis of all-cause dementia um, among DOAC treatment compared to VKAs. And did uh, for those on warfarin and VKAs, did the time in the therapeutic range have any effect on the risk of either MCI or dementia? 
Yes, it did. So among almost 13,000 VKA users, we found good INR control was associated with a 27% reduction in instant dementia diagnosis compared to poor INR control. Okay, very interesting. So overall then, how do you interpret the results of this study? And did anything surprise you? Well, I think our results actually um, really confirmed what we suspected at the beginning, that there would be this reduction in new dementia and MCI diagnoses among people um, on DOAX compared to those on warfarin. And I mean, reassuringly, as Sharon said, we did this range of sensitivity analysis and those supported our main findings. I mean, obviously, this isn't trial evidence. I mean, this is real world data, which has some limitations, um, but it might be relevant to consider cognitive risk profile when prescribing OACs for AF. And actually, interestingly, since completing this study, um, NICE has published some updated guidance on diagnosis and management of AF, um, published in April 2021. So NICE now recommends DOAX's first-line drugs for stroke prevention um, for people who are at higher risk of stroke. Um, and actually, warfarin is now recommended where DOAX are contraindicated or not tolerated. Um, so in terms of our study, I suppose our study supports that change of guidance by presenting favorable direct data, but on a different outcome on dementia, um, because of the time period when our study was published, obviously it wasn't taken into account in the guidance, but um, mm. it, it certainly supports it. I was just thinking about the, the time and therapeutic range. I mean, for people who are currently on warfarin, it's reassuring, I suppose, that um, our study showed that people with good control actually did better in terms of dementia diagnosis compared to people with poor control. So warfarin certainly had some benefits, um, but I think one of the issues is people do find it harder to maintain good anticoagulation sometimes on warfarin, you know, INRs affected by illness, etc. cetera. Um, did any of the results uh, surprise you or were they really in line with what you hypothesized? I think they were fairly in line with what we'd imagined. I suppose the only thing that's slightly surprising is we saw a larger effect size for mild cognitive impairment compared to dementia. Mm. Um, but I think it's important to interpret that with caution, given that MCI is a slightly um, it's a slightly woollier diagnosis, I suppose. Um, we looked at both symptom codes and diagnostic codes for MCI. So it is possible, you know, MCI doesn't necessarily lead on to dementia. There are reversible causes of mild cognitive impairment. Um, but that was the only thing that was slightly surprising. And uh, what's next, would you say, in terms of this kind of work, in either in your group or other, other studies that are ongoing? Are there prospective trials ongoing that you know of, or is that is it sort of not worth doing now that NICE have changed the guidance? Well, our next steps really are to broaden out our work on brain health and dementia, um, particularly considering how to manage other risk factors um, that might lead to um, dementia diagnoses. And, and actually in our group, we've got a big focus on infections. Um, so looking at COVID-19, but also other infections. And, and, and one of my um, PhD students, Rutendo Mizambi, um, recently published some work in the Lancet Healthy Longevity, um, which showed that having various common infections was associated with a, a sort of persistent increase in dementia diagnosis over nine years of follow-up. So I think we're going down some slightly different routes and looking at other um, other risk factors and of course in risk factors like infections can actually trigger conditions like af as well mm. um so i think understanding some of the mechanisms perhaps and pathways through which different risk factors act is, is an important next step and anything else you guys would like to share where can people find out more about the work that you're doing in your group well i think one of the really important messages um coming out of this is um that what's good for your heart is good for your brain um and in terms of key messages around brain health. Um, 
it's important to emphasize that de- dementia is partly preventable. So I think there's lots of things people can do in terms of not smoking, regular exercise, um, not drinking excessively, and also controlling risk factors like AF that can reduce your chance of, of developing dementia. And I've actually, I'm actually involved with the Think Brain Health Global Initiative that um, aims to promote dementia risk reduction and research into this area. So people can have a look at the website, um, thinkbrainhealth.org for some more information on what the group does. Fantastic. Well, that sounds a, a really good resource, and I'll certainly put a link to that in the in the show notes. But I want to uh, thank you both for taking part today. It's been really interesting to hear about your research. Thank you very much, James, for having us. Yes, thank you, James.